the privilege, the blessing that it is to be able to gather together in unison, Lord. All of us being able to pray our Father. All of us being able to sing to our Father, Lord. Thank you for the gift of the church body, Lord. Help us to not take it for granted, Lord. Help us to not think it's essential for each and every one of our lives. Lord, we, we ask that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. So overflowing here, Lord. So many of us from different walks of life, different social classes, and yet we're here to be able to hear from you and to hear from your word. So we're asking that you'd soften our hearts, Lord. I'm asking that you'd fill me afresh with, your Holy, with you, Holy Spirit, to be able to rightly apply your word. And Lord, for today, we pray that it'd be a special blessing for all the moms here, Lord. Pray that you'd please give the desires of the hearts of so many moms here, so many prayers that they've been praying, Lord. I pray that you'd grant them those prayers today, God. And Lord, for those that today's a bittersweet day, Lord, for the moms that have gone home ahead of us to heaven, Lord, uh, perhaps the difficult moms that we've had, uh, perhaps the no pregnancies and families, Lord, we just pray that you'd be comforting those that need comfort this morning, Lord, and that we would be able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, Lord. But we ask that you would be blessed and honored this morning and that we would be challenged to grow and be edified and to grow up into you, Lord. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 6. We'll start off in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Now to be good students of the Bible, if we see a therefore and a them, we should backtrack to make sure that we have proper context of who Jesus is speaking about here. So we'll start off in verse 1 of chapter 6 so that we can get proper context, so we can get proper application. It tells us, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Here Jesus starts off telling us, do not be like them. 
Do not be like those hypocrites. Do not be like those who do religious things or righteous things or good things only to be seen by men. Our actions, our heart should desire to be seen by God and to just show our gratitude to our Father in heaven. Do not be like them. Do not be like those that do their charity, do their giving, or do their righteous works only to be seen by mankind. Those that constantly need to put social media updates for every good deed they do. It brings into question, who is this for? Is this for God or is this for your own conscience, your own notoriety? Who is it for? Instead, we are to do our charity, our giving, our righteous works. We should do it in order to be seen by our Father in heaven and no one else. And if we do it in secret, if we do it with the heart that God, I want you to know, I don't care about people knowing, then he will reward us openly for what we've done behind the scenes. Do not be like them. Do not be like those who pray in order to be seen by other people and to be viewed as more righteous or more spiritual than we really are. Those that begin attending more church services because a guy or girl they're trying to impress is at those church services. Those that begin attending Bible studies of the parents of the guy or the girl that they're pursuing. Do not be like them. Do not be like those that pray only to be seen by other people to be viewed as more religious. When it's time to eat, do not be like those that pray a long time that make the food go cold. Don't be like them. Instead, our prayer life, our prayer life is to find somewhere still, somewhere quiet, and somewhere private so that we can spend intimate time with our Father in heaven in the secret place. Then the more time we spend with our Father intimately and alone, just our Father and us, then He will reward us openly for the time we've spent in private with Him. When you want to go on a date with someone that you love, when you want to spend some time with someone that you care about, you find a secret place. You find a secluded place, a place where you can talk in private and not be interrupted. And our prayer life should be the same. Do not be like them. Do not be like those that change their vocabulary or their volume or their speech or begin praying in King James because they think it will cause the God in heaven to answer their prayers. You, you see, there's nothing we can do in our life besides living biblical lives or praying biblical prayers. There's nothing we can do in our own efforts to cause God to answer our prayers more. He's already poured out His grace. We don't deserve His love. We don't deserve His mercy. We don't deserve the ability to pray to Him. And there's nothing we can add to our righteousness to sort of coerce Him to answer our prayers even more. Instead, we are to know that our Father already knows what we need before we ask Him. He already knows what we need before we ask Him. Adam Clark says, Prayer is not designed to inform God, but to give man insight into his own misery. To humble his heart, to excite his desire, to inflame his faith, to animate his hope, and to raise his soul from earth to heaven. 
and to put him in mind that there is his father, his country, and his inheritance. When we pray, it's not there to give God information in what has taken place. We are to pray to raise our needs before our Father in heaven. Prayer, it's not arm wrestling with God and trying to force Him to do what we want. Prayer is bringing our needs before our perfect and loving Father in heaven and waiting to see what does He want to do with it. What does he want to do with my needs? How does he want to address my needs? Perhaps, and we'll see it later on, oftentimes our prayer life begins to affect our own heart and we see just how off our mindset is. We could turn to Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 give us the proper foundation in which our prayers should be built upon. Who are we praying to? Who are we talking to? What type of access, what type of relationship do we have with this person and with this being that we're talking to? Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. It tells us the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. If we're willing to suffer with Jesus Christ. If we're willing to suffer against the world. If we're willing to suffer against our flesh. Then we get to become children of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If we cry out to Jesus Christ and his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection for our sins, then we get to be adopted into the family of God. And then we have the joy, the blessing, the privilege of having the creator of heaven and earth being our father. I I believe I don't think about that as often as I should. Perhaps you're having car problems this week. Your car has been breaking down. You've been having difficulty. Maybe you wonder, man, what joy it would be if my dad was an incredible mechanic, let's say, right? Maybe your mortgage is getting more and more difficult and it's sort of choking you out. And you say, what would it be like if Elon Musk was my father, right? (laughs) Difficulty getting tickets to the heat game. What would it be like if Pat Riley was my father, right? And yet we have the creator of heaven and earth. The creator of heaven and earth. The creator of the universe. The God who is love. And he is our father. The all-knowing, the all-powerful God who knows the beginning to the end. He is our father. And it's difficult for some of us because over the last few decades, that term of a father has turned to something that's worse and worse and worse. Especially if we've had a bad example of a father. If our father left us or our father abused us, our father abused our mother, whatever the case may be. We see that word father and we don't get that excited about it. But our God, he is a perfect father. Our God, he is a loving father. Our father, father, he is a loving and knowing and intimate. He desires for us to come near to him. He desires for us to be with him in the secret place. 
This isn't a father who's shooing us away for his own business and because of his own duties. We have a father that has the business of the entire universe and yet he's telling us, come to me. Come to me. Come and meet me in the secret place. He knows what we need in Psalm 139. Verse 4, it says, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Our God, He knows everything. He knows what we need. He knows what we desire. And verse 2, He says, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts. You comprehend my path, my lying down. You know all my ways. So when we pray to Him, it's not to inform Him of what's going on in our lives. When we pray to him, it's not to be the backseat driver and tell him what to do and how to do it. When we pray to him, it's bringing our needs. And instead of just allowing them to weigh us down, we take those needs, those wants, those desires, and we throw them up to heaven. And then we say, Lord, what do you want to do with this? What is your will with this? Mary, Jesus' mother, gives us a great example of this at the wedding in Cana. She tells Jesus, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then she just tells the servants, do whatever he says. That, that, that's Mary's prayer, and yet it gets answered. Peter, when he's drowning, what's his prayer? Lord, save me, right? And his prayer is answered. Our prayers, they don't need to be long and pulling out words from the dictionary or words from the thesaurus. Our prayers, we don't have to be acting like someone else we see on social media or putting on a different accent or putting a different outfit. Our prayers need to come from the heart and mindset that he is our Father in heaven. So we'll read through this prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If we're honest, even this prayer, we can fall into sin and it becomes vain repetition. How many of us right now, we're just reciting the prayer, not even thinking of what we were saying, meditating on the words, considering what Jesus is truly telling us here. And we are prone to fall into vain repetition. That's why Jesus warns us. Before we go to bed, we have the same five-point prayer, right? Protect the house, protect my dreams, don't let me have a heart attack while I sleep. Amen, right? Before we eat our food, we have the same five points. Bless this food, may be good to my bodies. Can you lower the calories somehow? Amen, right? (laughs) We have the same five points, going to work, going to school. Jesus is here reminding us our prayer life. We need to take a step back and realize I'm talking to my Father in heaven. I'm not just throwing words out into space. I should not just be throwing out hot air. I should consider my words. So Jesus here, he gives us a model for prayer. We can repeat this prayer if we're mindful of it, but we should not use it with just vain repetition. Maybe your background, you had a difficulty in life and the priest told you, hey, do five Our Fathers and a couple rosary prayers and you'll be good to go, right? That, That shouldn't be the case. It should not just be vain repetition. 
Our words should matter in life, so our words should matter in our prayer life as well. It shouldn't just be mindless babbling, but an intimate crying out to our Father in heaven. One last thing before we dive in here. There's no portion of scripture in the epistles or in the New Testament. We don't find in church history of the early church using this prayer as a model or just repeating it over and over again. So that's interesting for us to be mindful of. And now after the book of Acts, each of us, if we're sons and daughters of the Father in heaven, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And now the Holy Spirit, He can guide us in our prayers, and He can also translate even our groanings when we don't know what to pray for. So Jesus starts off saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So important. He doesn't start off saying, when you pray, say, my Father in heaven. He says, our Father in heaven, collectively, right? Take a minute and look around the room for a minute. Especially that person you really don't like that comes to church, right? Take a minute and look around. Our prayer life, we have to consider, is not just me and God against the world. No, we are adopted into this family all together. And now our prayers, it's not just about us, but it's about our family altogether. And when we're praying for another believer, we have to consider, that's my family member. Maybe they're that crazy uncle you don't get along with on Thanksgiving. But hey, it's still your family. We have to be mindful of this. When we pray, he's our father collectively. We don't have any record in scripture of anyone praying like this or crying out to God like this. This would have blown away the minds and the hearts of both the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Greeks here in this mixed multitude when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus is telling us our prayer life stems from the relationship we have with our Father in heaven. We don't come to Him as the manager in heaven or just the God in heaven or just the waiter in heaven or the bank teller in heaven. We come to Him As our Father in heaven. Listening to Pastor Rich Chafin, he gave a great analogy on this. Considering the mindset we should have when we pray. If any of you sleep over my house, I'm going to do as be as hospitable as I can, take care of you, tend to you, different things like that. But the relationship I have with my children and them sleeping over my house is much different. My kids, if they have a bad dream, they can just swing open the door to my bedroom. They can cry. They can crawl into bed. I'm going to comfort them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to talk them through it. Depending how bad it is, maybe they sleep in my bed. Maybe I carry them, fall asleep in their bed instead, right? Or whatever the case may be. But if you're sleeping over my house and you have a bad dream, (laughs) and all of a sudden you swing the door open... We're going to have a different type of relationship there. (laughs) My mindset whenever I'm woken up from my sleep is if they're under five feet, I don't have to worry about it, right? (laughs) All of my kids, they're nine years old and older. So if they're under five feet, I don't have to reach for anything, look for anything. Everything's okay. Everything is fine. But if you're sleeping over my house and you swing the door open and try to crawl into the bed with me and my wife, (laughs) it's a different type of conversation. And this should put into perspective the type of access that we have to the creator of heaven and earth. The the type of relationship 
he desires to have with us. We don't have to hold anything back from him. We don't have to have any type of shame or any type of fear coming to him. He desires that we bring everything to him without shame, without worry, without any weights. We need to bring it all before him. Again, sons and daughters, many of us, you're having a conversation and your kids come out of nowhere and they interrupt the conversation. What's going on? Oh, could I have some more goldfish? You, you, you broke up my conversation for goldfish? Are you serious, right? And yet that's the type of relationship and mindset and conversation our Father in Heaven wants to have with us. Now he also reminds us, our Father in Heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a reminder that, yes, he's our father, but we need to respect him as we should respect our earthly fathers. Yes, he's our father, but we need to be mindful of his holiness, of his splendor. We need to be mindful that we're down here on earth, but yet he is enthroned up there in heaven. A couple of scriptures on the mindset of our father in heaven. Psalm 103 verse 13 tells us, As a father pities his children... So the Lord pities those who fear him. If you respect God, if you have a healthy reverence for God, a healthy fear for God, he looks at you with mercy. He looks at you with grace. He, he pities you. He feels for you. That's the mindset that our Father has for those who fear him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it tells us, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Because of the death, sacrifice, and then resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now get to receive this adoption into the family of God, where now we can cry out to God as our Father our Father in heaven, but yet he's still to be seen as holy. Hallowed be your name. Here it's speaking about his name is to be held in reverence. We need to treat God as holy. We need to treat God differently from all others. This is one thing that's severely lacking in our churches and in our Christianity. There is such a lack of reverence for God and so many Churches and so many quote-unquote lives of Christians. In Hebrew, when you're speaking about someone's name, you're not just saying, hey, that's the name that I call them or their nickname. You're speaking of the very nature of that person. When you're talking about someone's name, you're speaking about their character, their personality, who they are, how much you've seen them, how much you know them, how much they have revealed to you of who they really are. This is what we need to consider. Our God, His character, His personality, all that He's revealed to us is to be held in reverence. It's to realize how separate, how different He is from each and every one of us. Psalm 9 verse 10 tells us, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Finally, Proverbs 18, verse 10 tells us, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. 
It's not just about saying the name the Lord over and over again or God over and over again or Jesus over and over again. There's some crazy theology right now that you can only call God by his real name, which is Yahweh or Yah. If not, you're praying to some wrong, false God. Just throw that in the garbage if somebody tells you about it, right? It's speaking of the character of God, the personality of God, who he is. And what this should cause us is a desire and a discipline to get to know God more and more and deeper and deeper. Get to know God. Get to know his holy character. And you will know that he is worthy of your trust. He's a perfect father. Get to know God and you'll find out that when difficulties come and they will come, you can run to him and you'll find safety there. You can run to his character. You can be mindful of his personality and who he is. And you can stand in reverence and holy fear. Verse 10, the first thing we're to pray and to consider after considering that he's our father, considering that he's holy and he's set apart. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what should the first order of business be in our prayers? God's business. The first order of business in our prayers should be God's business. At last year's married couples retreat, Lloyd Pulley, he said this, Take care of God's business and he'll take care of your business. Take care of God's business and then he'll take care of your business. So often our prayer life, our priorities are the exact, exact opposite. We, we think we're like, Whining and dining God. Hey God, if you do this, that, and the third for me, then I'll do this, that, and the third for you. It should not work that way. When we come to God, we come to him as our father. And he desires that we bring our petitions and needs to him. But we need to always desire that his kingdom come and his will be done even before our own will and our own kingdoms happen. Alan Redpath says this, Before we can pray, thy kingdom come. We must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. How many of us are willing for that? Let, Lord, my kingdom, let it go. My kingdom, what I've built up, my desires, Lord, they can all be crucified. And now, Lord, whatever you desire, whatever your will is, whatever your kingdom is, God, that's what I want in my life. And Jesus teaches this by example. Don't you love it when someone teaches by example? Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus, in his greatest moment of need, he prays, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Charles Spurgeon says, he taught us this prayer and he used it himself in the most unrestricted sense. When the bloody sweat stood on his face, and all the fear and trembling of a man in anguish were upon him. He did not dispute the decree of the Father, but he bowed his head and cried, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Family, how often are we willing to do what we know God is calling us to do? How often are we willing to put our desires, our will, and our kingdoms to death and destruction in order to usher in his will and his kingdom and what his word already tells us. Prayer oftentimes brings us into proper alignment with God. 
And through our prayers, we should come to the truth and realization that we would rather not receive our own desires than go against the will of God. If God is perfect, if God is good, if God is love, if God is all-knowing, He knows the end and the beginning, why would you want any other will to happen in our life? Why would we want any other will to happen? How many of us here this afternoon are thanking God, Lord, thank you for not answering that certain prayer. Anybody here? I have a lot of those prayers. Lord, thank you that you didn't answer such and such prayer because my life would look radically different. And I'm seeing how that person is acting. Lord, we really dodged the bullet there. Thank you, right? We have many prayers that we're grateful that God did not answer. And yet we come to the next fork in the road and we're wrestling, we're crying, we're whining. Lord, what about my will? What about my desires? He's all-knowing. He's perfect. He's loving. He's trustworthy. And then let's consider ourselves. I know so little, yet I think I know everything, right? I'm far from perfect. I'm extremely selfish. I should not trust myself. So in our prayers, what we need to do is humble ourselves and say, Father, your will be done. Our prayers should start off worshiping God, considering God, and being mindful of God. Our prayers should not just be consumed with us and our desires and our will. Yet we're going to see prayers going to continue to grow in and morph into God desiring to hear our daily needs. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. God of the large, he's also God of the small things. And he desires that we come to him. Again, our God being a perfect father, he doesn't say, hey, Zach, I'm too busy for you right now. War is going on in the Middle East, Russia and Ukraine. This is happening, the debt ceiling, presidency, 2024. No, he says, come to me. Ask me. Come and ask me. And he desires that we come and we ask him for our daily food. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say our daily steak. I wish that was in there, right? <laughs> he says our daily bread. We could turn to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, we see a very similar prayer to what we find here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 8 and 9. It says, remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This should be our prayer. God, give me that perfect balance, Lord. Don't give me so much that I forget about you and don't give me so little that I go out and I start doing things in my own flesh. D.A. Carson, he says, the prayer is for our needs, not for our greeds. The prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. God, he promises he's going to take care of those things that we need. Where our anxiety, our depression, our fears come in. Usually it's in those greeds, the, the extra things that we want and desire. Our prayer life, once again, it's about our needs. It's not about the yacht or the boat, the Bugatti, right? The million dollar house, different things like that. 
Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Dio Moody, he says, a man can no more take a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months. Nor can he inhale sufficient air into his lungs with one breath to sustain his life for the week to come. We are permitted to draw upon God's store of grace from day to day as we need it. God never gives us his strength in advance. That's why he tells us to come to him daily. Go to that secret place daily. Realize how much we need him. And may we continually go to him more and more often. If you think you don't need God, you are in a terrible state of mind. We need him every moment and every day. I think that's why God allows us to get sick from time to time. We forget about God and then we get a sore throat and now our prayer life changes drastically, right? Lord, heal me. I can't swallow anything. It feels like needles in my throat, right? Whatever the case may be. Maybe you're like me and I can't stand it when I get stuffy. And you're laying down on the pillow and you keep turning your head, right? So you could breathe out of the other nostril. And God, help me. I can't breathe. What's going on here? We forget how desperately we need him. Every moment, every second, we desperately need him. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here Jesus, he takes the word debt and it's linked together with sin. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And our sins are debts that we cannot afford. Debt to other humans and debt to God himself. There are also other people that in their sins, they have been put into debt with us. But it is nothing in comparison with our debt to our Father in heaven. We read earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We are to forgive others because we have been forgiven of so much. Our God, our God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are so many verses where God says, knowing their thoughts, knowing their hearts. Jesus answering them, knowing their murmuring in their heart. Each and every one of us, we may have people that have sinned against us, but we don't even know half of what they're actually thinking about us. The sins they're thinking in their minds, we don't know that. We can't read minds. So now we take our stack of debt against God, our stack of sin against God. He forgives us of all of it. How dare we be unwilling to forgive others who have sinned against us? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus a question and then Jesus gives him an analogy in Matthew 18 verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Have you ever put a high number on something, thinking just in case, let me put a high number on this, and then you find out you are not even close? Up to seven times, right? Lord, they sin against me seven times, the same thing. Is that enough to forgive them? And then after the eighth time, right? Is that okay? Verse 22, Jesus says to him, 
I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 years of salary. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a hundred days of work. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Sounds familiar, right? Verse 30, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. We need to pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here, the Sermon on the Mount, we can be reminded, this is not a pathway into being saved. Matthew chapter 5 and 6, it is those who are saved, this is how we are to behave. This is how we are to act. And because we have been forgiven so much, we love much and we forgive others in the same way that we have been forgiven. We desperately need forgiveness of our sins. Because the wages of my sins is death. May we not hold back from forgiving someone else the weight and the wages of their sins. David Brown, he says, God sees his own image reflected in his forgiving children. But to ask God for what we ourselves are refusing to men is insulting to him. How dare we ask God to forgive us of our sins and yet we're holding grudges and bitterness and unwilling to forgive others who have sinned against us. He who is forgiven much loves much. And there we see that our master, he had compassion on that person asking for forgiveness. Verse 13, back to Matthew 6, it tells us, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The word temptation here, we can also see it as a trial and as a test. 
And God allows us to go through trials and tests, but we should be praying in humility, Lord, please spare me from these tests and situations. I remember a couple years back, one of the brothers was saying, Lord, I pray that you'd bring some tests and trials our way so that we could grow. I said, no, 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 we don't pray that around here. We don't pray that around here. We pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from wicked and unreasonable people. Lord, do not lead us into temptation. That, that's what our, our father, that's what Jesus tells us to pray. We know that in James chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So this verse 13, truly, it is us realizing how much we need our Father in heaven. It's not trusting in our own flesh because we know that our temptations come from our own desires. That own lure of sin in our own heart. So we're asking God, please free me from temptation. Lord, protect me from it. Earlier in James 1, it says, we can't say, God, why did you tempt me? Our temptations come from our own heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God takes these temptations that the enemy's trying to use. He takes everything for evil. He makes it for good. And now he allows it to be a test of our faith. A test to reveal where we are at. But our mindset should be constantly praying, Lord, I'm weak. I'm weak, Lord. Deliver me from temptation. Lord, I'm weak. Deliver me from the evil one, Lord. Let me stand behind you, Lord. I need to be in that secret place with you, Lord. David Guzik, he says, if we truly pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, we should live it out in our lives in several ways. We should never boast in our own strength. We should not think that we're standing tall or standing strong or certain sins are below us or impossible for us. We should never desire trials. We should never go into temptation. If we know in areas of temptation, we should be running for our life, fleeing youthful lusts. And finally, we should never lead others into temptation. So it's not just a prayer that we speak in vain repetition. We are to live it out actively by not boasting in our own strength, not desiring trials, not going into temptation, and not leading others into, into temptation either. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Some scholars argue that the ending of this prayer should not be in here. There's nothing unbiblical here. There's nothing wrong that we see here. So if you're trying to take the kingdom and the power and the glory away from God, that's between you and God. But the prayer ends by reminding ourselves who God is and who he will forever be. It reminds us the kingdom belongs to him. The power belongs to him. The glory belongs to him. So if he answers my prayer or not, I'm safe because I'm his son or his daughter. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus brings it back to our favorite subject. He brings it back to forgiving others. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When we forgive men who have trespassed against us, we get just a small taste of what it's like for our Father in heaven who forgives us our trespasses over and over and over again. We should consider how does our God deal with our sin? Our all-knowing God, our all-powerful God, how does he deal with my sins, my shame? Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is why Colossians 3.13 tells us that we should bear with one another. We should forgive one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. Again, he's our father. He's all of our fathers. So we should be forgiving one another because, Dad, he forgave me. So I should be willing to forgive my brother or my sister as well. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, it says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Finally, Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our Heavenly Father chooses to forgive our sins. Our Heavenly Father chooses to pardon our iniquities. Our Heavenly Father chooses to remove and subdue our sins when we confess them and bring them to Him. And then He throws them into the depths of the deepest sea. Again, the all-knowing God chooses to no longer remember our confessed sin. And He shows mercy and compassion on us. So how should we deal with those who have wronged us? How should we deal with them? We should forgive them. We should let go of it and forgive it. Today there are so many that are bogged down by their own bitterness, their own resentment, and their own unforgiveness. They're just unwilling to let it go. And so many believers, instead of just forgiving and letting it go, what do they do? They go to a psychologist. And they want to bring up all their unforgiveness of what their parents did to them, so-and-so did to them, so-and-so did to me. Instead of just saying, you know what? God forgave me of all my sins. I should forgive them of all their sins as well. Biblically, that's what it looks like. Because our God chooses. He makes the decision to see our sins no more. And when he chooses to see our sins no more, he then releases the burdens of our sin and our shame. Do you remember the moment that you were released of the burden of your sin? You were released from all of that shame, all of your past, the terrible person you were, terrible decisions you made, the horrible things you did, and he released you of all that sin. 
He released you of all that shame. In the allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, he's carrying around this huge burden on his back through so much of his journey. But then he comes to the cross. And when he comes to the cross, when he sees the cross, when he puts his faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, the burden just falls off his back. And he says, God has chosen to see my sins no more. May we deal with our brothers and sisters, even our parents, our loved ones, in the same manner. May we make the decision to choose to see their sins no more. Because that's how our Father deals with us. Our Father, He doesn't take our burdens of our sin and then He pushes and puts even more pressure on us. Instead, He tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wants to take our heavy burden of sin and give us rest. He doesn't say, hey, you need to hold on to that heavy burden so you can feel all that you've done to me. You need to hold on to that heavy burden so you can sense how much you've hurt me. No, he says, hey, give me that heavy burden. Give me that all everything that's weighing you down. Give it to me, and I will in turn give you rest. May we not accept this great blessing of our burdens being unloaded from us only to press down upon the burdens of those who have sinned against us. May we be like our Father in heaven. May we act like Him. If not, it will be an incredible detriment to our fellowship and relationship with Him. It's going to be so difficult to enter into the secret place where our Father is if we are bitter and unforgiving and resentful to our brothers and sisters. It breaks our fellowship and relationship with our Father in heaven. We could think of the prodigal son and the older brother. The the younger brother, he comes back. Did that strengthen the relationship of the older brother with the father? No, he was bitter. He was angry. It, 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 it messed up his relationship with his father. And the same applies to us. We have received so much forgiveness. We have received so much love. So let us act like our father in heaven and give more forgiveness and give more love to others as well. Worship team, if you guys can come up and we'll close in prayer. And just a reminder... The God in heaven, he desires to be your father. He desires to just have that relationship with him. He doesn't say he's too busy for you. He doesn't say, hey, you have too many sins, you can't come near me. He doesn't say, you've done so much, I can't forgive you anymore. No, he desires that you ask for forgiveness, that you seek him, that you come to Jesus Christ and his death. His sacrifice and his love for you so that then you can be adopted into this incredible family where you'll be forgiven of your sins. Where you'll be able to receive the peace that surpasses all understanding. Where you can receive a love unspeakable, a joy unspeakable. That's his desire for you even on this Mother's Day. So hey, let's all stand. We'll close in song. If you need prayer, there's pastors up front. Perhaps you have bitterness and resentment and you need, you know, you got to let that go. Come up front, talk with the pastors. Perhaps this morning you realize you have no relationship with your Father in heaven. Come up front, talk with the pastors. Perhaps you realize your relationship is broken. 
The secret place, there's no conversation there because you're off with him. Hey, come up front and pray with the pastors. So, Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Again, Lord, thank you for...